so glad you're here this morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark the, uh, chapter 10. As we're looking through the Gospel of Mark, we're looking a- again into the, the whole concept of the Son of God. What happened in Jesus' life that needs to translate into my life? What, what did Jesus try to teach me? What, is he, what can we take from this and, and put into flesh, as it were, in today's society? It's, it's, it doesn't do us any good just to study the life of Jesus and not relate it to how I live today. So today we're looking at setting the trap. When I say trap, what comes to your mind? When, if I just say the word trap, what comes to your mind? I went to Webster's Dictionary, and this is what it says. Uh, trap, number one, to catch unaware, to trap someone. Number two, a device to catch animals, a, an animal trap. Number three, a machine that tosses objects for shooters. Josh, trap shooting, we got it, okay? I know he likes to shoot, that's why. Uh, next, uh, number four, a hazard on golf courses. Joe, Beck. Or as Joe would call it, his sweet spot. Number five, a one-horse carriage. A trap. We don't use that very much anymore. Number six, Fred, a drain pipe. See, I mean, each of us might have a different thing. What I noticed is they left out a couple. They left out speed trap and tourist trap. Uh, you know, you, you might think of that. By the way, I looked at some lists. The, the number one tourist trap in all of the world, in all of the world, Times Square in New York City. It's considered the biggest tourist trap in all of the world, Times Square. Have you ever had a trap catch you unaware? When I was growing up, my dad would tell us stories when we were going to bed at night. He'd come up and he'd have, we'd have prayer and then he would tell us stories. And we loved it when he told military stories, but every now and then he would reach back into his childhood. When he was about 12 years old, he went to what he called a nickel carnival. And it was a nickel carnival because it cost you a nickel to get in. Then you could do anything in the carnival for a nickel. This was a long time ago. And he went to the nickel carnival, and he and, and two friends, and, and they were so excited because they, to get a nickel together back then, that was a huge deal, to, to spend a nickel to get into the carnival. And they rode a couple of rides, and then they had a guy you know, along the line there that was the, one of the barkers is what they called it because they were trying to get you to come into their attraction. He said, boys, you want the most exciting ride you've ever, this ride will get your adrenaline pumping like nothing will ever pump your adrenaline. They thought, well, it doesn't cost any extra. Come on in. You're, and so they went in, and it was, it was just kind of a weird, today we wouldn't think it's that weird at all, but it was this slide that, that was circular, and it went up and down, and it went through dark things, and, and it was kind of a neat slide. What was interesting is when the slide ended, you were outside the fence, and you couldn't get back in. I'm talking about a trap. My dad, who never broke the law, who never bent rules, Said, I said, what did you do, Dad? He said, we had three of us. Two would boost the one, of a, one over the wall, and then he would reach down and pull the other one. We all three just climbed back over the wall. And when somebody says, you can't do that, he, the three 12-year-olds stood down an adult man and said, you cheated us, we're coming back. You ever been caught by a trap? Jesus dealt with a trap that we all fall into. And it's something that we don't even notice sometimes. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, look what it says. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It seems like such a simple question, and it is the biggest trap 
And the Lord wants to keep us from that. Jesus offers us the key in this, in this passage, the key to keep from falling into Satan's most pervasive trap. And it's one, it's a trap that's still with us today. So let's look at it. And we're going to look at just two questions. The first question is this, what traps should I be aware of? If the number one definition of a trap is to catch us unaware, what is the trap I should be aware of? Mark chapter 10, verse 17, going back to where we just were, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? By the way, this is in three different gospels. It's in, it's in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in Luke. Look at verse 18. Jesus never answers his question but he asks him a question. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Is that one of the Ten Commandments? Well, actually, if you look at the one that says do not covet, the reason that, that he said do not defraud is many times when you want what someone else has, you defraud them so you can have what they have. He's, twist, he's done a twist on it. It's the 10th commandment. But then he says, honor your father and mother. So he gives them the commandments. Verse 20, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Interesting. Again, Jesus does not does not answer that does does not say liar liar pants on fire he does not he does not dispute this look at what he says verse 21 jesus looked at him key to the whole passage and loved him this man is earnest he's sincere and jesus loved him one thing you lack he said go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come, follow me. There's actually five different commands in there, and we'll look at those. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. What, what trap should I be aware of? Number one is this. How do I view Jesus? How do I see Jesus? He comes and he says, good teacher. We generally respond in the same tone with which we're addressed. If someone comes to you and they say, hi, how are you doing? So glad to see you. You generally, you, you play nice. You come back and you talk the same way to that person. You respond in kind. And Jesus does not quite do that. He does not call him sir. This is what he's done. He, he's not shown him the honor. This man has bowed down in front of him. We have all of this stuff. And Jesus does not respond in the way that we, we expect him to. In, in fact, Jesus appears to zing him with this question. It's like telegraphing a punch. I don't know if you've ever gotten into boxing. I'm not a huge fan of boxing. I did a little golden glove when I was in high school and realized that it hurts when somebody else hits you. Decided very quickly my boxing career was over. But, it, but I do know that there's a way to telegraph a punch, and that's what Jesus did. Jesus starts from the very beginning, and he's letting him know this conversation's not going to go the way he thinks it's going to go. And he says, why call me good? You see, in the Old Testament, it's very clear that the, that the Old Testament writers and the prophets were very clear that there's only one who can really have that, that term good, holy, pure, perfect. And that's, that, that's what he's saying. He, 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 the, the word good is not the way we think of good. The good here is, it, it has tinges of perfect. Perfect teacher. 
And he says, why are you calling me perfect? 1 Samuel 2.2, look at what it says. It says, there is no one holy, there is no one pure, there is no one perfect like the Lord. There is no one beside you, there is no rock, there is no stability, there is no fortress like our God. And he knew that this young man knew the Old Testament, and I knew in his mind, in his heart, he's saying to him, do you get this? Now we call this young man the rich young ruler. We, we call him the rich young ruler because he's rich because in verse 22 it says he had great wealth. We call him young because in the Matthew account, in Matthew 16, 20, it's, we're told that he's young. And we call him a ruler because in Luke 18, 18, it says that this young man was a ruler. So he's a rich young ruler and he comes and he falls into this common trap because he saw Jesus as something other than what Jesus said that he was. Jesus never claimed to be good claimed to be God. Jesus didn't claim to be a teacher. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be deity. He claimed to be the creator of the universe. He claimed to be the one who sustains everything with his words. Jesus didn't come just to be a good teacher, someone that you can say, oh, that's kind of an interesting person. That's not who he came to be. And you say, well, pastor, are you sure about that? When I was growing up, a kid across the street named Randy Francis Uh, We used to play hide-and-seek all summer long. In fact, from the time school was out until the time we went back to school, we didn't wear shoes except on Sunday morning. And that was only because Mom made us put shoes on. And we would play hide-and-seek barefoot. And one night we were playing hide-and-seek, and we were hiding, and Randy kept saying, he never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be God. I'll never forget that. And when we got back, I got a a, a Bible, and I went to John chapter 8. In verse 58 it says, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. If you look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, it's the same wording. When Moses says, who should I say it sent me to Israel to bring them out of Egypt? Who should I say is God? What's your name? Give me a name. And God says to Moses, the name that you should have is Yahweh, I am. And if you go to the Greek translation of the of the Old Testament, what Jesus said in John 8 is exactly what it says in Greek, ego ami, I am. Did they get it? Well, the religious leaders in John chapter 8 picked up stones and tried to kill him, tried to stone him to death because he claimed to be deity. Or you could go to John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and none of them shall perish. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all. No one is able to take them out of my my Father's hand. And then he says in, in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father. And when he claims that, what happens? They pick up the rocks again. They pick up the stones. And in verse 33, it says, when someone says, why are you going to stone him? In verse 33, John 10, 33, it says, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They got it. In the New Testament, 80 times, Jesus has the title, Son of Man. Now, we think of Son of Man as not very much of a a title of deity of, of God. But if you go to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, they knew this prophecy. It was one of the prophecies that they had deep in their heart because they were waiting for the Messiah. And it says there that the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne of thrones. He's the King of Kings. And as the Son of Man approaches there, it says that the the Father seated on the throne gives to the Son of Man all authority 
it says he gives him all glory. The Shekinah glory of God is attributed to him. It says it gives him all sovereign power. And then everyone around the throne begins to worship not the Ancient of Days, but the Son of Man. They begin to worship him. And then he's told he'll have an everlasting kingdom. When Jesus uses the title Son of Man, it may not mean much to us, but for anyone like this young man who was steeped in the Old Testament, it meant Messiah. It meant this, the Son of God. We don't get that. We don't get that. I mean, we make, make claims all over the place. Our, our daughter has a blog, and uh, uh, these, square these square pegs. I love to read her blog. I've decided, though, that She's not nearly as good a writer. I, I'm going to claim to be John Grisham. You look at me realizing that that's false. If I claim to be John Grisham, would you come up to me and say, good writer? Or would you come to, up to me with a little white coat and some medication? I mean, and I love C.S. Lewis. I've, I've quoted it before, but it, you've got to listen again to what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says, I'm... I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people all often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was real, merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Do you get that? If, he, if Jesus said the sorts of things, he would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic... I love this. On a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any uh, patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. How do I view Jesus? And you say, Pastor, I get this. I, you know, I understand. He's the son of God. Do you? Is he your advisor? Is he a guy you go to when everything else falls apart? I mean, do you live most of your life okay, but when things really fall apart, do you go to him? Or do you go to him every day? Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Is he the boss? Or is he just a good guy? Is he someone that you're interested in? Or is he your life? How do I view Jesus day by day? What traps should I be aware of? Number two, how much do I value my effort? Because the young man said, all these I have kept, all these commands. There's a huge trap. There's a man by the name of Andrew Walls. He's a church historian. I was reading a, an article this week, and I, I was fascinated by this. He points out that the religion's origins always retain their center. Now, now think about this. If you want to go to the religious center of Islam, where do you go? Where do you go? You can say it out loud. Mecca. The, the religious center of, of uh, the Muslims, the Islam faith, is Mecca. If you wanted to go to the religious center of uh, the Buddhists, where would you go? You'd go to the Far East. You'd go to China, probably. That's, that's where you would find the biggest concentration of Buddhists. If you wanted to find the religious center of Hinduism, where would you go? You'd probably go to India, because that's where you find the biggest concentration of, of those who believe the Hindu faith. So if you want to find the religious center of Christianity, where would you go? 
Where would you go? Well, originally, where did, where did Christianity start? If we go to the day of Pentecost, it started on the south steps of the, the temple. We're going to be there next March. And you stand on the st- south steps, Peter preaches, 3,000 are saved, and the center of Christianity was Jerusalem. And then about 300 years, 400 years after that, it shifted to Alexandria, Egypt, for northern Egypt, uh, for northern Africa, and also to Rome. And it stayed there for hundreds of years, but then it shifted again to northern Europe, to, e- to England, and to France, and Germany, and, and northern Europe. And with all of, the, all of the different ones who came over to North America, eventually the center of Christianity shifted to northern Europe and to America, and to Canada, to North, North America. So where are most Christians centered today? Where do most Christians live? 52% of all the Christians who are alive today live south of the equator in South America and Africa. Shifted again. Why? Because if Christianity becomes something that we do, if it becomes something that is just something that we do, and we, list, and we miss the center of it, the, the center of Christianity is the cross. It's the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. You, you get that. If we miss that, if we miss what God did and we begin to center on what we do, then it shifts away from us. Well, that's not happened today. A new Webster's Dictionary came out in 2013. The second definition of Christian in the new Webster's Dictionary is this. Christian, a decent, civilized, or presentable person who does good. What's happened? Jesus never called the man a liar. He didn't, he didn't dispute this because it may have been that he brought all the necessary sacrifices. He may have done all of the Old Testament sacrifices exactly the way he was supposed to, but he still missed the point. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus did on the cross, what God has done for us. If we trust what we do to save us, we fall into the trap. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, says that he, he said, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Regarding the law, I'm a, I'm a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, I persecuted the church. Regarding legalistic righteousness, I was flawless. And then what does he say? But whatever was to my profit, verse 7, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And you say, well... Pastor, I get this. I was saved by faith. Do you think you need to help God out? Do you think by doing good that that somehow you're gaining extra points with God? Do you understand it's a trap that we fall into? Here's the third trap. What is vital in my life? It says the young man went away. The rich young ruler went away sad because he had great wealth. My view of any subject, and especially money, my view skews what I think about, my interpretation. What I think about money, what I think about any subject, I can, I can prove it. If, I, if we're traveling down a road and I see a bike shop, I say, ooh, a bike shop. And my wife says, ooh, a bike shop. But if we're walking through a mall and she sees a Williams-Sonoma, or Pottery Barn, she goes, ooh, Pottery Barn. And I go, ooh, Pottery Barn. 
Now, we just said the same thing, but we didn't say the same thing. You understand? How you view something changes the way you react to it. The political economic philosophy today is that wealth is evil. What we're seeing today in our society is that if you are wealthy, you are evil. And their thinking is this, that the only way you get wealthy is by injustice. You have stepped on somebody else to get your wealth. Now, you need to understand that when the disciples in their day, they had just the opposite view of wealth. Their culture was totally different. Wealth was God's reward for moral behavior. The more moral you were, the better you were as a person, the more God blessed you with money. Did you notice, and and you'll see it when we get a little bit further in, when Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven, the disciples say, well, who in the world is going to get in then? The best people are the wealthy people. They're not evil. They're, They're the good guys. In Job chapter 4, verse 7, Eliphaz is talking to Job, and he he talks about this concept. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? If you're upright, God blesses you and you have all this material stuff. Now there is that thought in some people today. Let me say something about this. Just two statements and then we'll go on. Number one, wealth is not necessarily exploitive. In the Bible, wealth is not necessarily something that you have to step on somebody else to get. Abraham was extremely wealthy. Solomon was incredibly wealthy. We've looked at that when we looked at Song of uh, when we looked at Ecclesiastes on Sunday night. I mean, he literally had a billion dollar income back then. I mean, it's just a it's it's a crazy thought. Uh, the, The supporters of Jesus, the supporters of Paul were women, and they were extremely wealthy. God does not say that wealth is evil, but wealth is not necessarily a sign of God's favor. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about some of the great Christians of the faith, and what does it say? They were destitute. It says that they were persecuted. They were mistreated. They had no clothes. They, were, they, were, they went hungry. If you look in the Old Testament, you see Naomi and Ruth. Naomi was a godly woman. Ruth was a godly woman. She ends up being in the lineage of Christ. And she was so poor, she had to go out and and get grain after everyone else harvested. She went and just tried to gather enough so that they didn't starve. Wealth is not necessarily good or evil. Not all of the rich are evil, no matter what our society says. But not all of the poor are good. It's not something you can just follow. And you say, well, why does that matter? Because we've come back today in our society that wealth is everything. Something's radically wrong with each of us. And money has a particular power to blind us to what is wrong. I mean, this guy's rich. He's young. He's a ruler. He's good looking. Okay, it doesn't say that. But if you're rich and you're young and you're a ruler, you are good looking. You understand? Okay. And, and, he's, and he's, what does he say? He said, what must I do? With all of his wealth, with all of this feeling that he's arrived, he's socially right, he's religiously right, he's done all of these things, and yet he knows there's something still missing in him. He knows there's a flaw. Let me ask you this. If I gave away everything, would it save me? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3 says, if I give all my money to the poor but don't have love, I gain nothing. Jesus looked at him and loved him because he realized this man was sincere, 
but he also realized that there was something that was, that was eating in his heart, and it was money. It, he was depending on his wealth. He was trusting on his money to save him. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24. Again, the Old Testament, something this young man knew. This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Could you imagine your life with no money? Kathy and I love to, to watch Downton Abbey. I'm sorry, it's, you know, it's British television, but I still like it. You know, and they have all these people, and, and I thought it was gr- great in this last season. The mother is supposed to come later to London, and she said, I have to travel from the country to, to the city, and I don't even have a servant to help me. Oh, I felt so sorry that she even thought that way. I mean, we can't fathom that. We can't fathom that. And, and their whole concern is, what if we lose everything? What if we lose a chauffeur and, the, and, and all of the servants? And, and I mean, they ring for everything that they need. I need a glass of water. I'm thinking about that, starting that system at our house. Not very much, but I am thinking about it. I would hate to do that. You'd see a couple fingers missing. Here's my question to you. What are you using to replace God? What are you trusting in? If God took that away, would you be very sad? What keys will set me free? Look at the last five verses. We'll we'll get to this. And, And it's very simple, and yet it's very profound. What keys will set me free? Go back to verse 22 one more time. At this man, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Why? Because the rich should be the first ones into the kingdom as far as they thought. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Then the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? If the rich can't get in because you've blessed them, who in this world can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. What keys will set me free? Number one, ask God to do the the impossible. Ask Jesus Christ to do the impossible in your life. Jesus is using an analogy here. It says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I, I've, I've heard so many stories. Any time I deal with this passage, I have someone come running up and say, did you know that there's a, there's a gate in Israel, and it's called the eye of the needle? And typically a camel could not get in there, but if you took the camel's pack off, and if you got the camel down on his knees, and he shuffled through, and usually the person had to kind of get behind and push the camel, you could get the camel through the eye of the needle gate by doing that. Isn't that a great story? It's absolutely not true. There's no gate called to the eye of the needle, and it's never happened. And it destroys the analogy that Jesus uses. And then I had somebody come and tell me this last time that I talked about this, said, well, do you understand that the Aramaic word for rope or twine sounds like camel? So 
it would be easier to take this rope and put it through the eye of a needle. I mean, if you did it, if you licked it just right and you cut it just right, maybe you could get that big piece of twine through the eye of the needle. You know what I think Jesus was saying? He's walking along with the disciples. And there's a camel. And he says, you see that camel? And you see that person over there mending that tent? It would be easier for that camel to go through the eye of that needle than for someone to get into the kingdom. Excuse me? And the disciples went, huh? And what did they say? What did they say? They didn't say, oh, how hard it is, and oh, how much you have to get on your knees, and oh, how much you have to grovel, and no. What did Jesus say? On your own, it's impossible. On your own, you will never be good enough. On your own, you will never say the right things. On your own, you will never make the right choices. On your own, you cannot get to God. It takes a miracle. That miracle begins with God's love for us when we don't deserve it. What did Jesus do? He looked at him and he loved him. He saw him and he knew what he needed. And he, he loved him enough to challenge him. Because he could have said, go back and keep the commands, go to the, do, worship it. But he didn't. He challenged him. He stripped away everything this man knew. And he said, do you understand? It is impossible to get there without me. Here's what's interesting. The, the, the man was sad. It's the same word that is used in Matthew chapter 26, verses 37 and 38. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to the disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. It says that this man was, was not just sad, he was broken. I mean, it was all stripped away. Jesus sweat blood. You know what the irony is? The real rich, rich young ruler, you know who that was? That was Jesus. And he gave everything away to go to the cross for you and for me. And he did the impossible to take care of me. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The very one who spoke into being all of the universe, the very one who created all the gold and the diamonds and the silver, the very one who is infinitely rich gave it all up for you and for me. So you need to ask him to do the impossible. When this begins to move me, when this begins to amaze me, when this makes me weep with appreciation, I have a chance to avoid the trap. Here's a second one. Ask God to set you free. It's not just to do the impossible, but to free you from the trap. Every time that Jesus talked about avoiding immorality, every, for every time that that happened, ten times he talked about avoiding the trap of money. Ten times more, ten times more did he talk about money over sexual purity. Money is not our savior. Restaurants are not our savior. Houses, cars, boats, bicycles, dishes, they're not our savior. 
And Jesus knew that somehow we would live in bondage to this world. The man did. Controlled him. Does your money control you? Your possessions? I mean, it's your house. Actually, it's not. It's God's. He owns it all. You're not going to take it with you. I know it's not yours. You may be paying for it, and you may pay for it for the rest of your life, but it's not your house. It's always been his, especially if you're a believer. Does your possessions control you? How about a habit, a dream, a desire, a, a pattern? How can I tell if something has controlled me? Tim, uh, Timothy Keller is a pastor in New York, and this is what he says. Here's the sign that money is controlling you. If you can't give away large amounts of money, if you get worried if you have less than you think that you need to live on, if you are jealous of other people's success, you may have a problem. Did you get that? If you, if you can't give away large amounts of money, if, if you get worried if, that you have less than you think you need to live on, or if you are jealous of other people's success, you may have a problem. Is money a tool that God's given you to bless others, or is it a scorecard? Is it your identity? Is your identity wrapped up in money? Psalm 119.32 says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. You know, it's, it's, it's not how much do I have to give, it's how much do I get to give him. It, it's not look at what I have, but look at what God has done. It's not that money is evil, but if we trust in money, it's, it's hideous. What if we made our standard the same one as Jesus? He gave it all on the cross. Let me close with this. In, uh, in 1845, Sir John Franklin in Britain was given the task to go find the Northwest Passage. We've talked about this a little bit before. Uh, he set out on this expedition, and they told him that he could take all of this and all of that and all these provisions. But when he got ready to leave, one of the people on, the, on board the ship loved to play the organ, and so they took some of the provisions off so they could take a, a uh, pump organ where you pumped it and, and it would play a, a pipe organ. And so they took some provisions off for that. And then another one said that his uncle was a great silversmith and would do a personalized set of silver plate not only for the plates, but all the silverware, and put their initials on it. And so they took off more of the food and provisions uh, to do that. And then someone said that they had a relative that made the finest of all clothes, and so they took off some of the heavy coats so that they could have the nicest new shirts and the nicest, fanciest clothes that they could possibly have. And they set out from England in, in 1845. Literally did not find them for years because they froze to death. In 1981, get that, 1981, 136 years later, they finally found the bulk of the people that they had been looking for. Their bodies were frozen. There were pieces of the ship still there. But here's the, one, here's the thing that I think is so amazing. One of them had frozen to death, and they later determined by some of the, the, the DNA testing that they did later on, they found out it was the one whose, whose relative did the silver plate, and he was lying there, in a, in a beautiful coat, an open shirt, no heavy coat on. He was lying up against the ship, and he had in his arms all of the silver plate that, was, that had his initials and had his name inscribed, and he was lying there frozen with all of the silver plate in his arms. 
And one of the people who discovered him, one of the scientists, asked this question. Can you imagine him saying, I wish we would have brought more personalized silver place setting? They ran out of food, they didn't have the heavy coats, and they went at the wrong time of year. My question is, at the end of your life, are you going to be clutching something? And the Lord says, what were you doing clutching onto that? It's a trap. And the Lord gives us the key. Give it all to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that this is such a practical lesson, that it's about the way we're to live, the way we're to love, that we're to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we're to love other people, and we're to use as tools those things that you've given us. And Father, you have blessed us with so much. So forgive us, Father, for turning that around and making that our focus and our desire and our God. We love you, Father. We want to live for you. And we thank you and praise you that you've given us the key to avoid these traps. Lord, you know the heart of every person here today. You know my heart. And it's easy for me to fall into this trap where possessions mean too much. It's all yours, Father. It's all yours. Remind me of that every day. May I love you more. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a closing song. As we sing this song, love for you. If you have a spiritual need, you can come sit on the front, one of these chairs. One of our deacons, their wives, will come and pray with you. I give you my heart.